following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through mission, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Good morning again, everybody. I am proud of y'all for clapping. Woo! We might need Sammy to show us how, but we can still do it. We can figure it out after a little bit. Uh, Sammy has a heart so that we can worship in all kinds of different ways and in all kinds of different styles. And so we hope that sometimes we'll sing your favorite songs, and we hope that sometimes you are challenged and stretched in the way that we worship so that Jesus says that all nations will come and will sing, and we want to represent that. And so please do uh, feel free to share song ideas with Sammy uh, at restorationsouthside.org. But uh, also know that there's going to be a lot of variety, and uh, we hope you'll embrace that with us. Uh, if you keep your order of worship in front of you, please, um, we're going to be looking at uh, the verses as we go. It's printed on the back of your order of worship if you haven't seen it yet. Um, it's there for you. Uh, every week in our study of Hebrews, I think this is going to be the best it's going to be the best passage that we studied. This is the best one that we've had. And then another week goes by, and I was like, no, 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 that one was good. This is going to be the best passage that we study in all of Hebrews. My friends, I don't know what I'm going to say two weeks from now, but this is the best passage that we're going to study in all of Hebrews. It just keeps on getting better. And so if you would, um, we're going to pray in just a moment, and we'll ask God to bless our study of His Word. So would you pray with me? Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I thank you and I praise you for your word and your Holy Spirit. I ask that you would move powerfully by your spirit this morning. That those who don't believe by your spirit would come to faith. That those who are struggling and discouraged would be able to lift their heads and smile. Father, this passage would change everything if you could just believe it. We ask that you would help us to believe it this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you're new to me, you may know that, uh, or you may not know that I tell lots of stories about my kids. Um, I don't want you to feel too badly for them. One, they're definitely going to take it out on me someday. And two, I have to pay them a dollar every time I use them in a sermon illustration, so right now they're still counting up the big bucks. But I'm going to tell you a story about Carson, and I normally don't tell you stories about Carson because she's um, less trouble than the other four boys. And so uh, she's easy and sweet and my princess, the rose among thorns, for sure. She heard of a father-daddy, excuse me, a father-daughter dance six months ago that was coming up. And we talked about it maybe four times a week for six months. She talked about what she would wear. She talked about what I would wear. She talked about what kind of car we would take to the father-daughter dance, what we would eat there. Uh, she was so, so very excited for this thing, and we signed up. And then this week, my sweet little girl got a rash in her face. And we 
they thought it was. As it was coming closer to Friday night and the rash on her face, which she's not here this morning because she didn't want to, Aaron didn't want to infect the rest of you, the rash on her face was getting a little bit worse and a little bit worse. And she said to Aaron, Mommy, please tell me it's going to clear up. Please tell me it's going to clear up for the father-daughter dance. I want to make sure that I look really good. And I don't want to look bad so that I'm not allowed to go to the dance. The sense that this girl who is loved and delighted in would be afraid that something about her would either send me away or repulse me or repulse others, and so she wouldn't feel welcome because of something wrong with her. I didn't want her for one second to see that. So instead of that, instead of father-daughter dance, I came home, she was in her princess outfit and princess shoes. I picked her up, we went out to her favorite restaurant, Chick-fil-A. We feasted. We got her flowers. We got her chocolate. She got to stay up late. When I brought her home, I said, thank you so much. What a wonderful day you've been. You see, her dad doesn't care much about a little rash on her face. Regardless of the fact that that might make her feel insecure, it affects my love zero percent. I just want to be with her. The reason that I tell you that story is because I think there's this thing in Christianity where you think that God made you clean, God drew near to you, God made you His own, and then yet after that happened, you kept sinning, you kept making mistakes, and your appearance to Him kept getting uglier and more difficult to deal with. That He didn't want to see you as often, that He wasn't as proud of you as He used to be. Yes, you got a record and a new one, and it was glorious, but you've been dinging it up. And now he probably doesn't want to spend time with you, and now he can't look you in the eye the same way. And friends, this passage is supposed to set us free from thinking that our ongoing sin, our ongoing failures, would cause the Father to remove his countenance from us, to remove his love from us. It sets us free from that notion. So if you're, if you've struggled to think, yes, I'm a Christian, but I've got myself unclean, and now there's nothing I can do about it, friends. This passage is for you. There's three different things I want you to see from the text, as you know from the author. The author of Hebrews just keeps hammering. Jesus is the better priest. Jesus is the better prophet. Jesus is the better king. Jesus is the better David. Jesus is the better Moses. It's almost as if he interrupts himself to go backwards and then talk more about it and then change gear and go back to it and do it again and again. So this time, the, in chapter 8, he focuses on Jesus as a better high priest. Now we have a better covenant, and now we have a better forgiveness. A better high priest, a better covenant, and a better forgiveness. Let's first look at a better high priest. Look with me in verses 1 and 2. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, 
a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. I told you the author continually is talking about the point, the significance of the fact that Jesus is a better high priest. And just so that you or I do not miss it, he slows down and says, now the point in what we are saying is this. Now when you hear anyone say, the point in what I'm saying is, listen really closely because they're giving you the answer. And what he's saying is, now the point in what we're saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent the Lord set up, not man. He's saying we have a particular kind of high priest, a particular kind. Now I want you for just for a second, just so you can understand the significance of this, you think as priest, you kind of think about pastor. Like this is what Jared used to do. But a priest, that's not exactly what it was. A priest was almost a farmer in how much blood and animals he dealt with. Just constantly making sacrifices for the people. Listen to this. I know it's hard to be read to, but listen to this. This is what you're to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs, two lambs, one year old. Offer one in the morning and the other at night. The first lamb, offer a tenth of an ephah and the finest flour mixed with a quarter of a hand of oil. Pressed from olives and a quarter of a hand of wine as a drink offering. Sacrifice the other lamb at twilight with the same grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning. A pleasing aroma. A food offering presented to the Lord. For generations to come to this burnt offering is made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Here's what he's saying. Before the Lord. There I will meet and speak with you. There also I will meet with the Israelites and they will be, the place will be consecrated by my glory. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting in the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. He brought them out of Egypt so I might dwell with them. I, the Lord, will be their God. What he's saying is, is that you can draw near to me if you have these priests use blood to sacrifice, and because they've used blood, because someone else has paid in death, you can draw near to me and you can be near me. And that actually, there's so much sin that they can do these daily offerings, and then they have the big one one time a year where the priest gets his hands red with blood. The reason that I want you to see that so clearly is because priests had their hands blood red all the time and it was because they were busy. Later on in Hebrews 10 it will say that day after day a priest stands making sacrifices of bulls and goats which can never take away the sins. And now he turns and says this, watch this, day after day stands sacrificing animals that can never take blood. And he says, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. What that's saying is, is that the sin that you think disfigures your face or disfigures your heart, that keeps the Father repelled away from you, the sin that you haven't even gotten to, that you're afraid of, will distance you between God. That sin has been so dealt with that the high priest, instead of day after day doing this thing, this high priest sits down as if to say, it's over there's no more distance between you and me anymore. There's no more counting of the sins. There's no more shame between you and I. 
I'm not like any other high priest who comes and then has to do it again and has to do it again. My payment is so full and so good that no one will ever have to pay for your sin ever again. It's already paid for. He sits down. Why in the world does it matter that he sits down? It's because he's saying, I've done my job now and it is finished. The problem is you and I don't believe that. That news sounds too good. We can't even really resonate with it. You're telling me, Jared, the sin I haven't even gotten to yet, the ones that I will utter in anger on my deathbed, those sins have already been washed by the blood of Jesus and will never keep the Father from you ever again. Those sins, that's exactly what I'm saying. Sin you haven't even thought of yet, let alone executed. What he's saying is that he would pay once and for all for all of the sins, your first sin to your last sin, your dying breath, that it would all be covered. So much so that the that Jesus sits down as if to say the high priest work is done. There's a reason that I want you to live in that. He sits down because there's no more sins to be paid for. What I want you to hear about, hear from that, is your good behavior doesn't help pay for your sin. Your good behavior doesn't help pay for your sin. It's already paid for. Your bad behavior doesn't add to your sin account. It's already been paid for. My favorite line in all of Hymnon is my sin, and then the author literally so happy, interrupts himself and says, my sin, oh, the bliss of the glo- this glorious thought. What he's saying is, my sin, and then he gets so caught up and he's like, I can barely handle how glorious this thought is. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. You hear it? Even the hymn writer understands that this wasn't a partial payment to guilt you into trying harder. This wasn't something to motivate you as if, I'll pay a lot, but then you better start making some down payments really quick. My sin, not in part, but the whole. That's why Jesus sits down. The other priests have to keep making sacrifices because the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. But when Jesus sits down and saying, my blood is better blood, It covers you in the past, in the present, and for the future, and it'll never stop being effective for you. What I'm telling you, friends, is you already have the pleasure of God that you want so badly to feel. You already have the pleasure of God that you want so badly to feel. If you're new to this story, if you're new to Jesus and this idea of blood and bulls and goats and high priests. If you've been told that Jesus is angry and that Jesus wants to make others feel less, you've been hearing wrong things. If you don't know Jesus, can you imagine that He loves you so much He would give you His own record and that He would take your record and that He would be sacrificed on the cross so that even though you experience still sinning in real time, that's already covered. 
so that you never have to be afraid again. Your good behavior doesn't help pay for your sin. Your bad behavior doesn't add sin to your sinful. Why would He do this? Why? It says this in Deuteronomy 7, 7, The Lord did not set His affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than other peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you kept the oath you swore to your ancestors and brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. He's saying the reason that the Lord set His affection on you is because He loved you. Now this is the Old Testament people of God hearing that in that verse. That the reason that He rescued them is because He chose to set His affection on them and He did that because He loved them of His own volition. And He kept the oath you swore to your ancestors. The Father isn't keeping an oath that He swore to the ancestors. The Father is keeping an oath that said, My Son, for the sin of the people. And so when you think that you've done too much to Jesus to love you and forgive you, what you've said is that Jesus has worked that plus some of beating yourself up and trying really hard, that together adds up to my salvation. It's the Father keeping His oath saying, I... I'm the one who made this happen. I'm the one who drew near to you. I'm the one who did this. My oath. Jesus is a better high priest. One of my favorite things in all of sports is the walk-off home run. If you're unfamiliar with sports, that's okay. The walk-off home run, because baseball, like a, a few other games, is an untimed sport. So baseball ends when the game is over, not when the clock runs out. A walk-off home run means that somebody in the bottom of the ninth or the tenth or the eleventh, the home team, scores. The game's still going because they're not winning. So they're either tired or they're behind and scores. And immediately when they score, everybody can go home. The game has ended. The person has done their job. The most significant of these was 2011. The Cardinals won the World Series. Game six, David Freeze. I'm holding Cormac. He's like two days old, and I'm walking back and forth in my living room. And I'm just pleading with God to bless the Cardinals. Just pleading with him. And David Freeze stands up, knocks a walk-off home run, and everybody can go home because he did his job. Everyone can go celebrate because he did his job. Friends, that's the picture of atonement. Jesus has done the job so you can go celebrate. You can live unafraid of your ongoing sin because you know that it's already been paid for. He is the ultimate high priest. But that's not even enough. It's not just that. Did you see what he does? We have such a high priest who's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. That means he's done his work. And then a minister in holy places. That means He accomplishes everything we need for salvation. That's the glorious thing that you all know about. The high priest sitting down. He's paid it. The, the curtain is torn in two. It's the finished work of Christ. And then when He sits down, He turns to His dad and He's like, let's encourage them, help them, and serve them. That's not what you think about. In my honest moments with my own heart, 
I think he paid the price and he agreed to do it. And because he keeps his word, he will keep his word. But he sits down, crosses his arms and goes, I am getting weary of this guy. I'm weary. But that's not what Jesus does. He sits down and he starts to serve, to minister to us on our behalf. In the greatest moment of exaltation and fame, doing what God sent him to do, he sits down and then starts to minister on your behalf. Jesus prays for you. That's what it means when he says he intercedes to the Father. Imagine the ridiculousness of this concept. All other religions have some people learning and fighting and struggling to pray in hopes to merit God's favor. And in Jesus, you are given God's favor at the outset, and He turns and prays for you. That is not the actions of a begrudging father. Devotion, then, friends, isn't proving your faithfulness to God. It's basking in God's faithfulness to you. Aaron and I go on once a year. I go away for four days, leave the kids with her. Same thing, once a year she goes away, leaves the kids with me for four days. And it's a gift that we give each other because we know that we're young and we're tired and we're busy parents and we both need a little headspace. And so we go off with our friends and... When you come home from being away from your five children for four days, and your spouse has had them on your own, you pull into the driveway, and the spouse opens the door to walk to the other car because they've been standing out the front window looking for your arrival. And as soon as you say, hey, and give a hug and a quick kiss, the spouse leaves. As if to say, they're your problem now. It's as if to say, I have done this work for you. I was glad to do it. I was happy to serve you. But you're on now. That's not what Jesus says to you. I was happy to serve you. I loved you. I died for you. But you're on now. He says, I'm delighted to stay now and to serve you and to intercede for you. It's a better high place. Because... faithfulness to sit down. I want you to think often about this phrase, the finished work of Christ. If you don't put it in the front of your head, it'll slip out and, and it'll, it'll become common. It'll, it'll become some piece of doctrine that you're hoping to live by, but don't really resonate with. I want you to memorize the words, the finished work of Christ. That's what's going on in this text. story of your life is not still open for debate. The final word on you is good, loved, accepted, forgiven, perfect. And it will never be taken from you. You don't have to act or live in shame or fear that you don't have it. The finished work of Christ. Keep it before your eyes regularly not just a better high priest, it's a better covenant. Look in verse 7. For if it, the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. 
we find fault with him when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. So he's saying you had this old covenant with Moses to keep the Ten Commandments. Do that and live. Don't do that and die. And no one was able to keep it. No one was able to obey. No one was able to stare at the covenant long enough and try hard enough to keep the covenant. Nothing was wrong with the law. What was wrong is with the people's inability to obey it. They can't can't be a solution for them. Because over and over again, they'll disobey. It's this external thing. You're supposed to tie them to your hands and you're supposed to write it on the doorway. But it's not going to be enough. Even little people show that their heart needs to be moved. The twins have figured out how to get out of their beds. I was tempted to build a roof over top of their crib so they could not get out of their beds, but I heard you can go to jail for that. And so we go in and we put them down and we turn off the lights and we say, hey, do not get out of your bed. What's going to happen? Spanking. Yes, a spanking. That's right. Do not get out of your bed. Yes, all. Yes, all. I take two steps out of the door and I hear... I go in, I look them in the eye, and I say, what does Daddy have to do now? Spanking. Yes, spank. Ha, do not get out of your bed. Got it. Cohen, you either do not get out of your bed. Got it. Two steps out the door, start walking down the stairs thinking, okay, I don't want that to happen again. And you hear, they're two, and they're already showing. They know what's right, and they're not going to do it. That's what the law was. We knew what was right, but we couldn't do it on our own. And he's saying that wasn't enough, and so we need a better covenant instead of an external thing for you to keep. How about an internal thing that I will do, God says? He says, I will change your heart. Part of why it's hard for us to make progress in our growth in grace and our changing is because we don't believe it can actually happen. We think given any opportunity, we'll mess it up. One of the great fathers of the church used to say, I'm accepted. I can change. Which means part of your growth in grace needs to be saying, I know I'm loved and forgiven and my high priest has gotten it done and now I can change. And not this, I can change because I'm so awesome. I can change because I'm so disciplined. You're saying, I can change because I have the Holy Spirit inside of me writing on my heart. He's actually quoting from Jeremiah 31, 34. He says, When I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. They broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's the new covenant. It will be written on our hearts. This is from Ezekiel 36, talking about the same new covenant. This is God speaking. 
want you to hear it. Who is responsible for changing you, rescuing you, and making you all new? This is God speaking. For I will take you out of the nations, and I will gather you from all the countries, and bring you back into a land, your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. I will, I will, I will. It's almost like it's too much to hear. I will. Well, the problem is, is we don't spend all our time focusing on what God will do for us. We focus all of our spiritual effort thinking about what we can't do or what we've done wrong. And he's saying, you're missing the point. You're staring at what you can't do or what you wish you could do or what you didn't get done. And he's saying, I will get it done. I will get it done. It's a new It's a better high priest and a better covenant. And it's a better forgiveness. A better forgiveness. This is verse 12 and 13. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. He's offered us a better high priest and a better covenant that He will write the law on our hearts as we focus on Him and now a better forgiveness. What I mean by a better forgiveness is they used to have to get forgiveness through the priest, through the blood, and then do it again the next day and then do it again the next day and do it big time once a year. But their forgiveness was always in question. What He's saying here is that He'll forgive their sins for good. He'll remember their sins no more. Thomas Goodwin, he's the guy I referenced for you last week. He's a Puritan who writes on the posture of God in heaven towards sinners on earth. And we think the posture is anger. And he says, defending it from Hebrews, the posture of God is pity. Pity. He knows how hard it was. He's the one who came to rescue you. Pity. And when he talks about the forgiveness, this is what he says. His language is it's a, it's a little older, so listen closely, please. It's as if he said, the truth is, this is Jesus speaking to his church. It's as if he said, the truth is, I cannot live without you. I shall never be quiet until I have you where I am, so that we may never part again. And that is the reason of it. Heaven shall not hold me, nor my Father's company, if I have not you with me. My heart is so set upon you. And if I have any glory, you shall have part of it. Poor sinners who are full of thoughts of their own sins know not that they shall be at the latter day to look Christ in the face when we shall first meet Him. That they may relieve their spirits against their care and fear by Christ's courage now towards His disciples. Who had so sinned against Him. Hear this. Be not afraid. Your sins he will remember no more. Your sins he will remember no more. One of the commentators says, God does not just forget our sins. It's impossible for God to remember. You don't have to. 
salvation Jesus already gave us a better high priest and a better covenant and a better forgiveness. If you're new to this, this forgiveness is yours in Christ. If you'll put your trust in Him. If some of you have heard this all your lives and you get it in your head like me and then you step away and think, I've got to earn this. And He's saying, no. I've done the work, now you're mine. We close with this. I have this habit of a husband of referencing dates with Aaron to Aaron when we're out. And so I'll say, hey, do you remember when we were at this restaurant and we did this? Or, hey, do you remember when we went to this one place? The problem is, is that several times I reference it. I am saying, remember, Aaron, when we did this? And she's like, I've never done that before. Whoops. And she's like, who might have you been there with? And she takes that as a negative thing, but I've got a different spin on that. The love between us is so full. She has absorbed all my ex-girlfriend memories and made them her own. All I can remember is Erin in our love and our happy days, even if she didn't happen to be on one of those. She's not buying that. The point I'm telling you is when God thinks of you, He's filled with joy and laughter and compassion. Because when He thinks of you, He thinks of the work of His Son, who is the great High Priest, the mediator of the New Covenant, the one who would forgive and put away sin so that they'd never be brought up. And when He thinks of you, He thinks of His sons, and it fills Him with joy. So why would you wander around with your head hung when when God thinks of you, 